So our reading this morning is called The Kindness of Low Maine, and it's by the Reverend Karen Anderson. My friend Marcy and her boyfriend Brian recently ate dinner at a local Chinese restaurant. As they enjoyed a plate of lo mein, engrossed in conversation, a hand reached down and ushered away their platter of noodles. A voice, quick and agitated, mumbled, sorry, and a thin, poorly dressed woman left the restaurant with their plate of lo mein. In astonishment, they watched her walk down the street, holding the plate with the flat of her hand as she stuffed noodles into her mouth, slapping sharply against her face. The owner realized what had happened and darted out of the front door, chasing after the noodle thief. He stood firmly in front of her, blocking her way and grabbing a side of the plate. A struggle ensued. Noodles slid uneasily from one side to the other, slopping over the edge. He surged forward and pulled with a heroic strong-arm attempt to to retrieve his plate. The woman's fingers slid from the plate, noodles flew, then flopped pathetically on the sidewalk. Left empty-handed with soggy, contaminated noodles at her feet, the woman stood with arms hung, hung dejectedly at her side. The owner walked victoriously back to the restaurant with the soiled plate in hand. My friends were given a new heaping plate of lo mein, although they'd already consumed over half of the stolen plate. A stream of apology in Chinese came from the proprietor. Unable to eat any more, they asked to have the noodles wrapped up and set off to see their movie. A block later, they happened upon the low main thief. The woman was hypercharged. She simultaneously cried, convulsed, and shouted at a man who rapidly retreated from her side. My friend... Unsure about what to do, listened to her boyfriend's plea to just walk away. But she didn't. Instead, she walked over to the thief and said, Ah, we haven't formally met. But about ten minutes ago, you were interested in our noodles. They gave us some new ones. Are you still hungry? The woman nodded and extended her bony arms. She took the styrofoam container in her hands bowed ever so slightly, and murmured, Thank you. You are so very kind. What makes us walk away from discomfort or stay? You could say a lot about my friend's story, a lot about generosity, kindness, attention, and thievery. I'm more interested in what motivates us to confront that which makes us uncomfortable and makes us look at the guts and grits of decisions the choices to not address things that are uncomfortable, uneasy, unbalanced, unnatural, unbelievable. When our foundations start to shake, we can feel the tremors move up our legs and into our torsos, and we want more than anything to make it stop, anyhow, any way. My friend Marcy could feel herself shake. I know, because she told me so but she chose not to walk away. She dealt with the uncomfortableness. She held firm in the muck. Sometimes that's all we need or can do to get to the other side, the side where generosity, comfort, and kindness reside, 
the side where the foundations are firm and stable, where one shaking walks back to the other side. One of my favorite moments as a UU minister is listening to people tell the stories of discovering or rediscovering Unitarian Universalism. These are almost always stories of joy or of relief. They are stories of people coming home to their people, their tribe, their family. They are stories of finally finding like-minded people. They bring up images of a breath of fresh air or a cup of cold water on a hot day. They are stories of belonging. Finding one's tribe can be soul-saving, especially when the community outside the door of the congregation is extremely religiously or politically conservative. In one congregation I served, a member was very active in doing social service and community service projects, and she spent much of her time organizing things for the good of all. She worked alongside other very dedicated people, but most all of them were very conservative in their religion and in their politics. And so she rarely mentioned her own views, and she feared, realistically so, the ending of relationships. Our Unitarian Universalist congregation made it possible for her to do that work. With us, she could let her tear down, take off her shoes, and be herself. And it was soul-saving for her. While we love being in community with others who are like-minded and feel like we have a place we belong, that is not all who we are as Unitarian Universalists. You use have high aspirations. We aspire to live in a world where the inherent worth and dignity of every single person is honored and respected. We aspire to live in relationship with the interconnected web of all life. We desire human diversity because diversity is our vision of the beloved community. A truly diverse congregation and society is the ultimate expression of our faith. Respecting and living the inherent worth and dignity of each person and our interconnectedness with each other and with the earth. Unfortunately, really unfortunately, embracing diversity means creating communities of people who very well might not be like us. It means welcoming people who might not be like-minded and who might not, at least at first, feel like our people. And this is hard. This is very hard. How do we hold this? The desire to find sanctuary with people who are like us while having a deep yearning to open our hearts and community to people who are not like us in age, class, race, sexual orientation, gender identity, physical and mental ability, educational status, and all the other ways we've come up with to categorize people. How do we hold this? And I wish I could tell you. I wish I could just give you a quick fix answer, but such dichotomies aren't, like, aren't solved that way. Instead, they are wrestled within the human heart and new realities are created through small human actions. 
grappling with how to feel the security and comfort and nourishment of our tribe while opening our hearts and lives to others who are in some way different is deeply spiritual and ethical work. There are no pat answers. Instead, finding one's way through the dichotomy requires shifts into new ways of being and understanding that we can't predict before we begin. It requires a commitment to the unknown. It requires being uncomfortable. I think one possible way for us to explore this dichotomy is through a traditional understanding of hospitality. The word hospitality derives from the Latin word hospice, which means host or guest or stranger. Hospice is the basis not only of the word hospitality, but words like hospital, hospice, and hotel. The word hospice itself comes from the word hospice, which means stranger or, interestingly, enemy. The Greek word that is translated into the English word hospitality in the Old and New Testament has similar roots. The Greek word is philiozenos. Philio means brotherly love. Xenos means immigrant or stranger. In its original meaning, xenos also meant enemy. It turns out that many cultures in the past used the same word for stranger and enemy. Then, in both the Latin and Greek, at least, a new word evolved from that word for stranger enemy that came to mean kindness to stranger enemies, or in the biblical Greek, specifically means to love the stranger, immigrant, enemy as one loves one's brother. It turns out that this idea that the stranger is an enemy, that the stranger and the enemy are the same has biological roots. Neuroscientists have discovered that when we personally feel pain, certain pathways light up in our brain. If someone who we are close to or we identify as being in our group has pain, those exact same neuropathways light up in our brain. However, if someone we identify as being in another group and not like us experiences pain, almost nothing happens in our brains. We do not naturally, biologically, have empathy with people that we identify as other and different. Linguistically, at one time, humans simply labeled those outside their group as both strangers and enemies because that felt true to them. This probably worked out well enough when humans lived in bands and tribes and kin groups. Those inside the group were friends and family, and those outside were strangers' enemies. It happened, though, that human civilization changed. People domesticated animals and plants. They created settlements and cities and trade. People began to travel more frequently from one place to another. To deal with the interactions of strangers, who were not actually enemies, in the Middle East and Europe, and other places across the world, sacred hospitality rituals sprang up. It became a social and religious requirement to welcome the stranger enemy. One must give them water and food. They must be made comfortable and all their needs attended to. The guests must be treated with the highest honor as if they might be God. 
Indeed, there is a very common tale told across the world of a god disguising themselves as a traveler, a poor, dirty traveler. The god first stops at a wealthy person's house, and the wealthy person says, ah, we have no food, we're out, go away. And then the god stops at a poor cottage where the family, you know, gives them much food and much welcome, often sharing the very last bits of their food. And as you might expect, at the end of this tale, the wealthy family is punished with poverty and the poor family is rewarded with wealth. I have told the same story starring the Greek god Zeus and the Hawaiian goddess Pele, demonstrating just how widespread across this world this particular tale is. In the story of Abraham in Genesis, three strangers come to his tent. He washes their feet, which was a traditional hospitality thing at the time, and, bring, and brought them, brings them water. He has one of his finest calves slaughtered and prepares to feed them so they have strength for their journey. It turns out that those angels come, had come to bless Abraham and his wife Sarah, with a child in their very old age. Again, the divine is hidden in the stranger. I heard a story of a person recently who traveled to the Middle East and found themselves in a small village. The people greeted him in the same fashion as Abraham greeted his guests. They prepared a feast of all their best foods. The traveler knew that people would go hungry because of this feast, and he protested. But this was their tradition, hospitality to the stranger. This sacred tradition of hospitality sprang up at a fraught time in human history when a new threshold had to be crossed. Strangers could no longer be immediately perceived as enemy or trade and travel would not be possible. Fear would rule. Through the practice of hospitality, which also required that a guest not harm a host under their roof, enough trust could be built to get people through that fear of the stranger enemy and be able to care for them. The practice transformed that stranger enemy into guest host. A guest and host was a new category of person. They were not a stranger enemy or a family friend. They were something else outside those categories. It's so easy for us to put people into categories. It is virtually the most normal thing to do. Our brains are set up to sort and categorize and judge so it can make shortcuts to understanding and action. We are made this way. No one is a bad person because their brains do this. Brains just do this. And because of this, we easily can put people into categories with labels like they're like me, not like me. To make things worse, our minds jump easily into the judgment of the not like me. It is very common for well-educated white people to think that less educated people of any race are not as smart. It is common for Democrats to think Republicans don't have any empathy and are closed-minded, and for Republicans to think that Democrats are lazy and immoral. Those strangers we do not know, can sometimes feel, well, maybe not exactly like an enemy, 
but someone we need to be cautious and worried around. And in white culture, the dominant normative culture in the United States, and the culture that made colonization possible and now sustains global capitalism, judges not like me to be less than me. That culture, our culture, defines white, heterosexual, able-bodied Christian men as normative, and everyone else is lesser than that. Such categories were absolutely required if the white colonists, were a, white empires and colonists, were going to take the land and enslave people of color across the world. They had to be less than, or it couldn't be done. And we have only been attempting to change this normative description of humans in our culture for the last 60 years or so. And they are still all part of our culture's categorizations, unfortunately. And lots of people in our country, the majority in fact, get placed in the other and lesser category. Depending on who we are in this cultural system, these cultural categories can add weight and pain to that not-like-me category. The result of all this is not-like-me's, people who are not like me, people who are strangers, who are different, can make us feel uncomfortable. We don't know how to be with them. We don't know the rules. We worry we might say something wrong or offend someone or appear stupid we sometimes feel worried about our safety, maybe not with a whole story about how that person is dangerous, but just maybe a feeling of anxiousness if someone isn't dressed properly or hasn't bathed or looks somehow a way we consider to be dangerous or threatening. The traditional practice of hospitality helps us move people from stranger enemy, not like me, category to a guest category. Traditional hospitality, a worldwide practice, but one preserved in our own culture by Benedictine monks, teaches us that guests deserve our care and our open heart. Guests, as we are told in the old tales, might be God. They deserve to be treated with reverence. We seek in our brief or sometimes longer encounters to find the holy or the good or the beautiful in another person, something beyond categorization. The story of the rabbi's gift is a wonderful story of hospitality, even though it's not about strangers. The brothers begin seeking the divine in each other and offering reverence and respect to each other. This is the practice of true hospitality. Guests come through the doors of this congregation or we meet them in the checkout line at the supermarket or at rallies or in our neighborhoods or in our schools or in our workplaces. Choosing to see someone as a guest who we treat with reverence is a difficult spiritual practice. It requires setting aside our natural inclinations to categorize and judge and simply try to know a guest on their terms not ours. We are asked to receive and respect them as they are, even if they don't dress or speak or look like we expect people to dress or speak or look. We open our hearts 
We extend grace. We smile. We help them be as comfortable as they can be. We try to meet their needs instead of considering our own needs to be comfortable or right. We try to know them, but allow people to be unknown if they wish, like Brother Philip is in the story of the monks, while still being kind and thoughtful and receptive. We don't assume in our rush to know someone that we understand them already and that we know how they will think or feel based on the category we have so naturally placed them in. We do not assume that our way of seeing and being is the right or the normal way. This is a spiritual practice, and spiritual practices change us. Father Daniel Holman and Lonnie Pratt in their book Radical Hospitality say, Hospitality enables you to joyfully make room for another person inside your open heart. It stretches that brittle, tight heart. A closed-up heart can never relax, never allow you to enjoy another, to play, to relish the moment of unguarded surprise. At first, it can be so uncomfortable, though. What makes us walk away from discomfort or stay, asked the Reverend Karen Anderson in today's reading. What motivates us to confront that which makes us uncomfortable and makes us look at the guts and grit of decision, the choices to not address things that are uncomfortable, uneasy, unbalanced, unnatural, unbelievable. The woman in today's reading chose to treat the thief who grabbed the food she was eating off the table as a guest, as a person who was desperately hungry and needed her care. She offered this mentally ill woman the food that she needed. Reverend Anderson says of her friend, she dealt with the uncomfortableness. She held firm in the muck. Sometimes that's all we need or can do is to get to the other side, the side where generosity, comfort, and kindness reside. This woman chose to hold firm in the muck. And I think that is our answer, that we must choose if we want to practice hospitality to be uncomfortable so we can reach out to a stranger who feels different from us as a guest. We choose to walk through our fear of saying the wrong thing or enduring an awkward silence. We choose reverence and respect and kindness and care. We choose an open heart. We make the choice and the commitment to hold firm in the muck. We began this service by remembering the joy so many UUs feel when they find Unitarian Universalism and our sense of finding our people and feeling belonging and comfort. So the question is, can we commit to discomfort, to the discomfort of inviting people in who are not like us when we love so much the feeling that this is our home? Won't everything change? Well... No and yes. According to neuroscience, simple, small social interactions with someone 
who you have determined is outside your group is enough to bring them into your group. After this encounter, we begin to experience that person's pain as our own in brain scans. The act of hospitality, welcoming, and getting to know someone and treating them with reverence actually changes us. The pathways in our brain that begin to light up in different ways about this person, when that happens, we experience it as the opening of our hearts. So yes, there would be change. Exactly what that change is, I cannot say. But I do know the people who feel like our people will grow. And our people might no longer be like-minded and may not have been to college or listened to NPR or drive Priuses. But they will be our people to care for and honor and respect and who will care for and honor and respect us. They will be our people, working with us to create the diverse, beloved community we are dreaming of. We have uh, five minutes we can devote to questions, comments. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you so much. I'm Salima Mawson, and I, I want to just share something that happened here about 10 years ago when we had the opportunity to welcome the the angel Gabriel. That's what we named him. On a Sunday morning there was a young man who sat in the back, towards the back. He was very unusual. He smelled bad. He had been out and about, probably homeless for some time. He was definitely a stranger. He made a lot of interesting, strange motions. He couldn't seem to sit still. And he had fingerless gloves on. It was in the fall. It was getting cold. And he was making people around him very uncomfortable. This happened to be a situation that I am not uncomfortable with, and so I approached him. And I said, hello, I, I, think, I, I think we know each other and wonder if you'd like to come and get some coffee with me. We went downstairs and we had coffee and we talked and he talked and he talked and he talked and he talked. And we walked outside and he said, I really want to play the piano. I said, is that why you came in? And he said, yes, I heard the music and I wanted to play the piano. Can I do that? And I said, well, not right now, because the service is happening, but let's walk around a while, and when everybody's done, then I think you can. And he did. We came back in. He sat down at the piano. People began to gather as the music lifted. You've never heard more beautiful music. He was certainly a concert pianist, and his name was Gabriel. So one thing that I didn't sort of lift up as much as I could have in the sermon is this idea in hospitality, this looking for the God in the other person, is that really 
the other person is our opening to the holy and to the spiritual. And that stranger is one of the paths through. And so, Salima, I think that story just exhibits that perfectly. Sue Alpern, it's kind of hard to follow that story. (laughs) I've been here a long time, but I must not have been here that day. Um, I know I've said this before, but I I just think it bears repeating in my master's program. um, Dr. Um, Milton um, Bennett had written and is known for um, saying, we don't need the golden rule, we need the platinum rule, which is do unto others as they would like you to do. I have a story too about categories of people and thank you so much for for elucidating that about the you know the the family friend category and the stranger enemy category and that we need a third category. Um, when I went off to college, I was um, a preppy upper middle class kid with good grades and I found a boyfriend who was a preppy upper middle class kid with good grades. Um, and uh, everybody we knew was white. Everybody we had always known had always been white. And panhandling by our ATM, our usual ATM, uh, was a guy who was none of those things. He was probably in his 50s. He, was, he probably had schizophrenia. Um, and he was black. And my boyfriend, for reasons I did not then understand, was totally comfortable with this guy and friendly to him and the guy warmed up to my boyfriend and they kind of became friends and because I was often with my boyfriend I was often near this strange smelly guy and so I kind of got a little bit comfortable with him although he was still you know I would never in a million years have have even gone to that bank with that guy standing there if if my boyfriend hadn't been nice to him and comfortable with him And there came a day when I was walking along a street by myself and a um, well-dressed, preppy white guy about my age fell in step with me and started talking to me. And he sure was my category, but I felt very quickly that I was not safe and that this situation was bad. And he was trying to get me to come with him. He was... Long story short, it was a long couple of blocks, and I couldn't see a way out of this situation, and I knew I was in danger. And then up ahead of me, this is L.A., and there was nobody else on the sidewalk. Up ahead of me, there was one person on the sidewalk walking up the street, and it was the scary guy from the ATM, (laughs) whose name I knew because of my boyfriend, and I flung out my arms and called his name. And he the crazy guy, quote-unquote, sized up the situation instantly, flung out his arms and called my name, and we gave each other a great big hug and started chatting. How are you? How's your boyfriend? Blah, blah, blah. And of course, when I looked up, that nice, preppy, terrifying white guy was gone. And Jude and I strolled on. And uh, the ending of the story, I guess, is that Uh, my boyfriend turned out to be mentally ill in the same kind of way that Jude was. Um, So really, none of the categories hold. Yeah. 
they really mostly never hold. It's really not true. I mean, we all think that we're like-minded people, but I suspect that there are things which we maybe choose not to talk about because then we might not appear to be so like-minded. I mean, that's one of the things about hospitality also to each other, not to the stranger, because that is going to be scary. It's, it's, you don't really want to out yourself. Um, so one of my stories about that is that um, I worked at a university for many, many, many years, and um, and I started dating a woman professor. I'd been married to a man before, which wasn't really a big deal. Nobody could care less in any of my worlds, but they were just like, one of my friends said, so you're dating a professor? That is insane. So that was pretty much the thing. And, but um, I, couldn't, I couldn't, in my own community, um, it took me a long time to come out that I was gone to seminary. It was very scary. So that was like a category that I kept very, very hidden in a community where I mostly just felt like these are my people. I love these people, but I definitely kept that hidden. So it's another form of hospitality. And it was hard. When I did start coming back, out people, about that, people were very distraught. So, anyway. Thank you, Tracy.